Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Wave Podcast. This is the second installment of a new series I've started called 3D Conversations. And some of the feedback I got from listeners is that they wanted to, they wanted a deeper dive into some of the topics. And so I've gone back to prior guests and reached out to some new guests and uh, have focused on areas that I want to dig deeper into that are of interest to me, hoping that they'll be an interest to you as well. Uh, I am a neurodivergent person. I have ADHD. Um, some days it is a, uh, when it's regulated, it's a superpower. When it's dysregulated, it's a pain in the ass to be quite direct. And uh, today, uh, recording this, I've been dealing with some fairly severe dysregulation and executive function issues today. Uh, so we'll see how it goes with low dopamine, but um, I'm speaking from my soul and uh, about a, pa- a topic I'm passionate about, and that helps. It also helps who the guests are today. And this is, a, a I think, the first time on the show having two guests, which is kind of cool. Um, and so I'm joined today by Kate Arms and Tracy Winter. They are the co-founders of the Neurodiversity Coaching Academy. And this is a, an academy that's launching that was born out of the fact that um, there's a, a shortage of coaches that can that can work with or specialize in working with neurodiverse people. And often neurodiverse people, neuro, neurodivergent people often need, not only do they need a different kind of coaching, they need coaching in general because the world that we operate in, especially in an employment environment, is really not friendly to us uh, uh, neurodivergent folks. So welcome, Kate and Tracy. Thank you so much for having us. You're yeah, thank welcome. you, Justin. We're glad to be here. And Tracy is a former guest on the show and one of my dearest friends. And Kate is a new friend. So, Kate, what's your one-liner background? What? How'd you get here? So I got here uh, because I struggled with employment. Uh, I was a lawyer. I was a theater administrator. I went to seminary trying to figure out what fit with my gifts. Uh, and now I am doing this neurodiversity coaching academy with Tracy. Uh, and the other part of what I do just for fun, it, just for fun, it pays me a lot of money. So it's not just for fun <laughs> uh, is uh, don't tell my clients, but I'm using the principles of applied improvisational dance in software development. Ooh, very interesting. That might be another topic for another show. How about you? Isn't Tracy? my partner, isn't my yeah. partner cool? Yeah. Your partner is cool. Uh, we all know about cool partners. Um, so Tracy, how about you? I already know you, but tell tell the audience who you are in one line. Uh, well, like Kate, I'm a co-founder of the Neurodiversity Coaching Academy. Um, I'm a friend of Justin's, which is an important thing to say here. Um, I'm a former musical theater performer. Like Kate, I have a eccentric uh, employment background, bounced around between legal and government and a um, couple different psychiatry, a couple different places. And finally landed, I think, where I belong, which is in neurodiversity coaching. And I'm excited to talk about that today. And you guys are both neurodivergent, correct? Yes. And what is, your, what is your label, self-appointed label for that? Like what, what, which, which form of neurodivergence do you have? Or you, you know, I don't, I don't want to get to make it sound path, pathological because it's not, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I'm an adhd and gifted, so twice exceptional. Um, I have some of the characteristics of autism, but I don't have a diagnosis. Okay. And Kate? Uh, yeah. So uh, for years and years and years, the only label I would accept was Kate mm-hmm. uh, because I couldn't figure out what labels fit. Uh, in retrospect, it looks like I'm probably profoundly gifted, uh, either ADHD or autistic or somewhere in that kind mm-hmm. of set of things. Uh, I've also figured out that I have aphantasia and I'm, and dys- I'm dyslexic. Mm. Uh, so um, I'm a big old alphabet soup without the alphabet ever actually having been applied to me. <laughs> yes, I, I I use that term a lot with me too because I've dealt with um, and still deal with to some extent less, but um, HSP, highly sensitive person, which is a little more pseudosciency maybe in terminology, but still a thing. And then definitely ADHD, I, very high on all the all the spectrums of that. Um, some indicators of autism, but not enough to be diagnosed. And then a, a childhood trauma survivors with complex PTSD and the alphabet soup of that produces, has produced um, 
something called RSD, rejection sensitivity dysphoria. And thankfully, with lots of work, inner work with my therapist, with my own meditation practice, having a great partner, I don't really deal with that anymore. Um, but part of the reason I wanted to have you guys on for this 3D conversation is this very topic of neurodivergent and, and, and neurodivergence. And it could be, we could talk about it, it relates to society and all that stuff, but especially considering you guys are launching the neurodiversity coaching Academy, I think it would be great to dig into neuro neurodivergence in the workplace. And um, so the first D of the three D's is a deep dive. And um, I would love to hear, um, and and Kate, you go first on this one. I would love to hear about how you arrived at that. There's a need for uh, a different kind of coaching within the workplace for neurodivergent people. How did you arrive at that awareness of that need? So it's kind of a backward story, which kind of feels like my whole story in a lot of ways. <laughs> I came to coaching in the the corporate environment as an offshoot of court coaching artists. So I started my coaching career through Uh, applied improvisational dance, and then creativity coaching, working with artists and people who were trying to recover their creativity. And then I got into the professional coaching world. And I was bringing all of this embodied work from my work in the performing arts to that professional coaching setting. And there were certain people that I was having success with that other people weren't having success with. And I was having success with the people they were having success with faster. So I knew there was something about what I was doing that was different. And it took me a whole bunch of detours into places where people were having the conversation about starting with giftedness and then other forms of neurodivergence that I realized that what I was doing was generally applicable and was therefore neurodiversity inclusive. Right. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And Tracy, a little different question for you, because I've known you for a good while now, five or six years. And I think when we met, you were in academia, as I recall, some form of that. And Mm -hmm. you've made this transition a few years ago to being a a coach, self-employed and specializing um, and your terms as a nerd coach, which I love that term. Um, and I, I, my question for you is, why did you make that change? What what drew you to making not so much a career change, but maybe a business model change? Yeah, um, well, several things. I've been a, I've been a credentialed coach since 2009. So I was coaching okay. all along, just not full time. Like I, you know, now it's my, my primary focus. Um, and at the time we met, I was sort of um, the academia was kind of wearing me down, to be honest. Um, I don't really like grading papers. And that's a lot of what an adjunct <laughs> professor does is grade papers. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of wearing me down. And I was really loving the coaching that I was doing, that I was starting doing. Um, and I had just come out of my doctoral program and my research was about highly gifted people. So that was sort of the direction I went first. And like Kate, that was sort of my entree into neurodiversity, even though I knew about my ADHD diagnosis by then. So um, yeah, it was, this is, these are the people I want to serve. These Mm. are the people that I think need the support that other people are not seeing need support because especially in the gifted world, it's like, oh, you're smart, you're fine, right? Right. But these these other ways of thinking and these other neurotypes have different ways that they need support. Um, And I think that's sort of like the culmination of a bunch of other things came together right in that moment. Yeah. Interesting. So um, this is a question for both of you. Um, Kate, you can go ahead and answer first if you want this time. But uh, the the question is, what's it like to be a neurodivergent person in a in the workforce? We can all speak to it as being self-employed. <laughs> like. um, and I wrote an essay uh, uh, last week called the NSFW of ADHD that, you know, not suitable for work. Um, and as to, to point this out, but I'm really curious about each of your perspectives on what it's like to be a neurodivergent person in a workplace. Yeah. Well, I think I, I want to start with the fact like we've all stepped out of that environment. Right. And I think that that speaks to how difficult it is to find a place uh, in that 
environment uh, for those of us who are out of the box uh, mm-hmm. in how we process the the world. And so it's hard and it's lonely. And a lot of people feel like they have to hide all of who they are um, when they're at work or sort of be very, very controlled about what they show or very, very effortful in how they make sure that they deliver what's expected of them if they can figure out what's expected of them, which is another challenge. And so the people who manage it successfully often are hiding and don't look so different in the workplace, but they go home and they collapse. Mm. Um, And the other thing that happens is the people who don't mask so successfully or find a way to navigate in a way that they don't strike others as unusual uh, is that they're the people who cry at work, who have Mm -hmm. emotional outbursts at work, um, that people don't sort of understand where they're, they're coming from. And there's a lot of self-shaming around that because that's unprofessional or at least judged Mm -hmm. as unprofessional in a lot of cases. Uh, So it's hard. It's really hard, often lonely and painful. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll hear from you, Tracy, but just some comment back on Kate, what you said is it, it, it's, there's elements of it too, that are, in my opinion, um, sort of uh, systemic, if you trace it back to what it is, it's sort of patriarchy and white supremacy to be blunt about what it is of this idea that there's a certain norm to be and religious based social conditioning in particular creates an othering or what I call a piece of shit doctrine is like, if you're not, if you don't follow the, the norm, there's something wrong with you. And then the industrial age and the power, the power dynamics of the industrial age, and all of those, um, the, that machinery of that, the machinery or what's being made may have changed, but the mindset is still there um, to a large extent. Um, it's in, in in my view. Um, but I'm curious, Tracy, what do you what do you think? What, what's that? What what's your experience or what observing the the people you're coaching? What it's like to be neurodivergent in the workplace? Yeah, so I think this is aligned with what you just said, Justin. But you know, the world is not really made for neurodivergent people. It's made for the norm. And so the, the ways that we are different are, are just not okay. From the time you start with an interview, right? And you need to make eye contact and you need to be charming and personable and you need to stay on topic and you need to tell the story just so, but not too much, but not too little. All of those things, which are like a minefield for many neurodivergent people, right? Through to, I'm on this team, I have these great ideas, like somebody has seen what I can do. And so, yes, I'm here and I can't communicate with anybody. Like, and nobody's listening to my ideas, which what I found with my clients, maybe because they are starting to explain the idea midway through and also Mm -hmm. skipping steps because they don't think those steps are important and everybody gets it. Um, You know, or I think it matters to the context. So um, Mm -hmm. in my personal experience, like my first work, you know, professional work experience, I had a wonderful um, leader who saw what I could do and like push me to do more of it. And that is not a typical story that we hear. Um, you know, so, so some things were accommodated and also it was like, this is what you're good at. Go do more of that. Yeah. Um, a lot of things that, that neurodivergent people are not good at are sort of the gatekeeping to the things we are good at. Right. Cause you have to start and you got to keep track of things and you got to do all the detail work and you got to right. like make things work. And then you get to do the strategic thinking and the big picture stuff. Well, Right. Uh, you know, I, I I had a detailed job for a couple of years. I was exhausted, like right. he was saying, just exhausted. He's so bad at detail work, but get me oh. the systemic stuff and I'm right there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for, yeah. For me, it depends on the detail, though, because there is the, the way that my ADHD manifests is this sort of minutiae pattern recognition. And so I love doing research, for example, like or logistics and planning. It's very soothing, actually, to be like to plan, you know, I'm in my partner and I are in the middle of planning our wedding and it's, it's fun. Um, but I know underneath it, it's sort of a sense of control as if I'm planning, there's a sense of control. And I think one of the prevailing emotions that those of us with ADHD have is shame underneath it. And because we, you know, we, there's a part of us that thinks there's something wrong with us. And 
So it's, it's, and, and it's, and the shame may not be like deep self-loathing, but for example, um, I, um, I, I'm doing some contract work with a bank and the initial office they gave me, um, the, the, the temperature, the room temperature and the lighting was terrible. And I'm like, I can't do it. And I had to explain to them why I was kind of embarrassed. I, and I was like, why am I embarrassed? This is, I'm a grown ass man. First of all, like I, if I, this is what I need in order to be at my best, that's okay. But there was still that sort of like angsty, like, Oh no, they're going to think I'm weird. And I see, and I see that in other aspects as well. Um, people think I'm irritable. Um, and I, at times at work, uh, you know, when doing work, uh, and, and I, I am, but it's because I'm regulating intensity. Um, it's sort of like, you know, you see those petroleum, uh, you know, uh, refineries with the, with the gas, you know, flame coming out to release pressure and, and irritability is one of the ways that I do that. So I don't, you know, lose my shit, um, or shut down. That's the other thing I'll do is I'll withdraw. So, you know, along those lines, one of the things is if you see a neurodivergent person seeming okay in the workplace, they are putting so much energy into yeah. achieving what a, you know, not so neurodivergent person is yeah. doing very naturally. Like you just don't see the hard paddling below, below the water. So I think that's a key part of neurodivergence at work. Great. And so let's talk about it from a, from a positive or superpower standpoint. Um, so what, what is the gift uh, of being gifted and of being, of being a neurodivergent person, person, how does it make you a better leader, better team member? Uh, go ahead, Kate. So I think that it would sort of, there are two kinds of pieces in here. Uh, and one of them is that some of the different varieties of neurodivergence have some really interesting positive aspects to them. And so sometimes there are real sort of superpowers in the neurodivergence itself, depending on who you are and what your context is and how many challenges you have that you can overcome. So that's one piece of it. But I think as a leader, one of the superpowers of, there are a couple, once again, sort of a couple of other sort of directions. One is you see the world differently. So there are some people who can actually sort of see the gaps in the market, see the gaps that are needed about how an organization is working that can be a real gift to the organization if you can figure out how to shake things up without capsizing the ship. And then the other is once we've come to accept our own differences and the way that we're unique and special, uh, we tend to develop an enormous amount of compassion, which mm -hmm. as a leader is very, very powerful. Yeah. What do you, what's your take on that, Tracy? I'm, 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 um, I'm a little whirling from compassion because she's totally right. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of it's what I said earlier about neurodivergent people often have a, the bigger picture. They have systems in their heads. They have patterns in their heads in ways that other people don't. So that different perspective and that being able to understand all of the pieces and how they are, you know, geared together. Right. Um, there's also oftentimes a lot of visionary kind of ability that comes with neurodivergence. So in terms of like setting the path for the organization, don't tell it, don't ask them how to do it necessarily. Right. Like there are people for that. Um, I think one key thing about yeah. being a neurodivergent leader is by that point, you usually have an assistant. And if you gave every neurodivergent person an assistant that is good at the details and enjoys doing that and all of that, we would all be superstars. Well, not all, yeah. but many of us would be superstars right, because right. of that part. So I think, I think it goes both ways, right? Right. Like being a leader, you can support neurodivergence and other people with differences. And also being a leader, you get your neurodivergence to support it. Yeah, that's interesting. I think um, there is definitely, it seems like uh, ADHDers or, or neurodi neurodivergent people are sort of natural systems thinkers. Uh, because of our ability to, for pattern recognition or pattern disruption, you know, seeing things that are different. Um, I, I noticed too that there's a certain element of almost like uh, there's, there are certain cultures, work cultures where being quirky is a good thing. Um, you know, where yeah. if you have like a, a more open, inclusive culture, uh, being what what I call a, a potted plant, which means you're just very replaceable. Being a potted plant is not 
good for your personal brand or your work brand. And us neurodivergent folks, we are not potted plants. Every one of us is extremely unique. And and in a, being in a place where we don't have to struggle to be different. If we're in a culture where we're allowed to be who we are, um, I think that a lot of those, a lot of that safety, a lot of that psychological safety unleashes the positive sides of being neurodivergent. You had a thought, Kate? Well, I had a couple and I'm going to try and see how many of them I can pick up okay. and do something useful with. Um, I love this thing about we're already unique. I mean, the thing about being neurodivergent is that if you would just accept who you are and just be who you are and don't actually worry about how you're showing up, you just let go of that. How do people look at me and show up? You have a personal brand by default. You don't have to do any of that stuff because actually you're sufficiently unique that you have a personal brand, exactly. um, which is kind of cool. The other thing I think it's really important to say is that the pattern recognition and sort of systems thinking is a form of th thinking that shows up in mm -hmm. some neurodivergent people. One of the things I love about having been a theater director for years and years is that world has figured out how to collaborate a bunch, a bunch, a whole different variety of neurodivergences. So the people who are drawn to acting have a very different set of things that they're good at, typically empathy and embodiment. The people who are drawn to the tech backside of backstage mm -hmm. side of things very often have, so very often have embodiment as well. Um, because they want to be walking around doing things backstage rather than sitting at a desk. Uh, but systems and and practical sort of tangible physical things without so much of the emotional setting. The stage managers are super like I can put anything into a system mm -hmm. and the directors are really great with vision. Right. And then there are all of the different technical areas, music who have a great ear and, and that sort of right. thing. Um, and so Whenever I think about collaboration between neurodiverse people, I always go back to how powerful a well-run theater company is at being inclusive. Right. And it's interesting what you're saying there. Again, this is anecdotal for me. You, you all are the uh, certified experts, so I might be wrong, but it seems like there is a kind of two kinds of ADHD, which I refer to as, uh, you know, there's time blindness and then there's time fixation. So I always know what time it is. I always know what direction I'm facing. Um, I have lots of friends who are ADHD. They don't know what time it is. And it doesn't, you you say, you know, a few minutes when, it, when that kind of person with ADHD says a few minutes, you don't really know what that means. Uh, and so I think, I think that's fascinating. And before we get into the debunking, the second D, I wanted to, I wanted to ask both of you and uh, Tracy, you go first on this one is. Um, what are two or three systemic changes a leader could make to her or his business culture that would make it make life better, more productive for neurodivergent people? Thinking systemically, what could change her? Systemically would include policy, structures, flow, you know, procedures, things like that. What would be two or three things that would make a neurodivergent life at work a bit easier or at least more productive? I'm having that thing where I have so many thoughts. I have a traffic jam and I'm not sure which one's going <laughs> to pop ADHD, out. So it's okay. Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> um, for some reason, the first thing that always comes to my mind is, is the recruiting interviewing talent management process. Okay. That whole process is just, is, is just yeah. almost diabolical for many neurodivergent people. Um, I think systemically, so I end up coaching people who are neurodivergent about how to deal with their workplace and manage in their workplace and be themselves while still staying safe, basically, in a workplace that may not be as inclusive as we'd like. But it's them making so many of the adjustments. And so we talk about That's companies right. making accommodations, but accommodations yes. don't just mean noise canceling headphones and, you know, right. a exactly. different lighting, right? Yeah, exactly. So Those aren't really systemic. Those are extrinsic yeah mm -hmm. yeah exactly so so to me the systemic piece is managers have to understand their people and this needs to be part of it and vice versa and teams oh. need to understand who the different people are so like more people work really yeah. in order to communicate so you can get all of those great ideas that you get from diversity 
you know, making sure everyone's included and treating them equitably. You know, that's, that's what we're going for. Um, right. So I think everybody needs to make an effort to come out of who they are and understand who other people are a little bit better. Right. Right. That's interesting. What say you, Kate? So this is actually the space that I work in. Um, I work in, in, I do two kinds of coaching. I do one-on-one coaching where I do a lot of what Tracy is talking about, but I also do systemic coaching in organizations, uh, particularly in tech companies. And this is where, this is where agile comes from as a management technique. And so I would look at um, commitment-based management practices So commitment-based management is actually a technical term that doesn't come from agile. It comes from uh, MBA land and business exec land, and uh, it is totally paralleled in agile. Uh, So uh, which is the kind of thing I love is for the people who are outside the engineering world um, to take on this stuff. Um, But practices like team working agreements about how do we want to work as a team where the team that has to work together talks to each other about how they want to work rather than HR handing down a policy about how we work. Cameras on and cameras off is one of the really clear examples that there are really good reasons some people want cameras on and some really good reasons why some people want cameras off, both in terms of ability to communicate to the people who are there and in terms of understanding what's happening in the conversation. And by having a really nuanced conversation about what works for who under what circumstances, you can actually, people can use their own desire to work effectively together to craft something that works for this particular collection of people that is not necessarily the same as those one room over. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so those are really, really powerful. And sort of big picture, Anything that you're doing that's moving towards a coaching culture or a learning culture uh, is really going to take you into that psychological safety space. And if you're playing seriously in psychological safety, you're becoming more and more inclusive. Yeah, beautifully said. Yeah, I was thinking of agile as well. Um, having I'm not an expert in it, but enough you know that I could teach it if I had to. I have taught it. Uh, and I've often thought, after being diagnosed with ADHD four or five years ago, that this, this environment um, of, of sprints and the rule of sevens and some of the things that are part of it is, um, it, I think it would be um, systemically liberating. And speaking of liberating, I also think that using liberating structures in your meeting environments yes. is, a, is a huge component of this um, because to, you know, there, there are those of us with, there are neurodivergent ADHDers that are a little bit more aggressive, like myself. And then there are some that are more introverted or wall, or you know, wallflowers, if you want to say. I don't even really like that term, but introverted. And but they're they're called that. They're called like, oh, they didn't speak up, so I didn't think they had anything to say, which is super anti-neurodivergence. Um, and liberating structures, both in the struct in the format and in the intention, um, you know, a, gives space for uh, for for the contribution of ideas. Um, I think that's a big one. And then um, non-production creative time. So Daniel Pink talks about this a lot, and that companies and organizations that have basically have playtime, scheduled time. So not just you know ping pong in the break room, but where they have specific activities that are are creative, but not with a particular outcome in mind. So not like a scrum to come up with, you know, bug fixes, but just designing and creating purely for fun. Um, I think that's another systemic change that a company can make that would make, make it better, make it more productive, more, more inclusive for neurodivergent people. Any comment from either of you about anything you've heard? Well, I, I want to double down on the the play that is not necessarily for productivity, actually having a business purpose. Yes. And it is really grounded in neurobiology that so much of our performance management and our product and service delivery systems are fear-based in that we have deadlines and we have 
we have to get so much money in the door and we have to get so much product or service out the door and that there's pressure and everything's happening fast and our nervous systems, whether we're neurodivergent or not, take that pressure and turn it into narrow thinking and heads down, just do the thing I need to get out the door. And it's not innovative and it's not adaptive and it's not flexible. And if we're neurodivergent on top of that, and we're already stressed, just trying to show up at work, and then we have that pressure, it's very stressful and, and extra so. But whether you're neurodivergent or not, that's enough pressure to get us functioning in the survival parts of our brain and play for its own sake without it necessarily needing to tie directly to productivity actually opens up our all of our creativity and our innovation and helps us be adaptive in a like what's possible kind of way as opposed to a what do I need to just survive way. We're all really good at what needs to survive. Like we all discovered in March 2020 that all of us can adapt to what we need to do to survive. Right. But how many of us spent April 2020 playing? Not very many of us. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Tracy, any other before we move into the de debunking, any other commentary? I was just thinking about the liberating structures and what you said about introvert wallflowers, which is me, um, very much me. And I think, I think what you said is really important in that different people need to be invited into the conversation differently in order for them to feel comfortable to contribute. And this goes back to the psychological safety that Kate was also talking about, right? Um, if you, you know, if you don't know what an introvert's thinking, you probably haven't asked. That's so, right. you know, making sure to do that, um, and this goes back to know your people. It goes back to building the team in the way that Kate said, in that what what does each person need in order to feel comfortable in the team and to to contribute their ideas? Because you're missing out. You know, if somebody's not speaking up, you're likely missing out on some good right. stuff. And and I always have this view as a facilitator and speaker. The people that are silent often have the best ideas. They just need the permission, you know, or the safety to to bring them forth. And so I have a rule when I facilitate is everybody talks once before anybody talks twice. Um, and like so that. it is, you know, I've had some more introverted neurodivergent people say that feels like pressure. Um, mm -hmm. and I suppose that's true a little bit. Um, but I look at the alternative of not speaking at all and having that idea, you know, never seen the light of day. So anyway, um, so we're going to dig into debunking now. So the question is, and we'll start with you, Kate is, what are the biggest misconceptions you run into with leaders, like managers, bosses, you know, people that have a team that you're pitching to them, coaching or, or um, either sy systemic coaching or individual coaching, and they're resistant because of some mythologies. What are those that you are running into? So I think the biggest myth that I run into is uh, that uh, the way I got here worked for me, so it should work for everybody who works for me. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes, that's a that's a that's a power statement, uh, an uncon a low conscious power statement. Yes. Yeah, but I but it's but it's actually it's uh, we talk a lot about empathy in the neurodivergent space and how because everybody's brain and nervous system processes the world differently everybody, everybody functions differently. And so what right. works for me works for me. And for some of us, what works for us is so wildly different that we can't even imagine that what works for them possibly works for anybody because it would be such a disaster if I did it. And so it's just a natural thing for leaders in that position as they're looking at people who are coming up through a path that they just walked. Mm -hmm. to feel a real affinity to the things that worked for them right? because they worked for them. You're right. Right. How about you, Tracy? What are some common myths that you run into with leaders, especially, you know, obviously in most cases, a neurotypical leader is going to have the mythology, but I have a, I have another question like that for both of you after you answer Tracy. Yeah. Well, I mean, for, for leaders who don't have experience with neurodivergent folks, I get a lot of, they're just not trying hard enough. There's no reason they shouldn't be able to do this. You know, anybody can can keep track of this, that or the other, whatever it is. It's like, 
this is simple stuff for the for the leader in their opinion but what is simple for one person is is not just not easy but like terribly difficult for another person and so right. kind of aligned with what kate's saying like they're stuck in their own perspective of this is what's easy this is what's hard and mm. so that assumption of you're just not trying hard enough it's like yes you know you wouldn't if somebody somebody was in a wheelchair and rolled up right. some stairs you wouldn't say you're not trying hard enough to get up the stairs right right you build a ramp so yes. like not that i see neurodivergence as a disability necessarily and also there are things we can do to make it better but you've got to be able to think outside of your own head yeah i think that a bias that i run into is that leaders think that a com being accommodating and being inclusive are the same thing. Mm. Um, I would mm. use the comparative of uh, certain churches, church denominations that are, in, uh, they say uh, they welcome queer people as an example, which is nice. Okay, good. But that's not the, that's, that's allowing, not, not, it's not necessarily including. Including is when you, to me, when you as a leader are, creating systemic change inside of your organization so that everyone and the way they are is able to thrive. Um, and so I, I think, I think that's a, it's, it's a common thing with people with power and a little bit of status is that they, they think that um, it's sort of like if you change your, you know, Facebook profile photo to a Ukrainian flag, now you're an activist, you know, or whatever, you know, there's a little bit of this like lip service to it. And my theory behind it, is that I think neurotypical people in positions of power, because they have authority to command things to be done. This is why I think they have this bias that it's easy um, because they have power, authority, and resources to tell people what to do that maybe a neurodivergent person doesn't have. But because of that bias, they have no clue about how difficult it actually is. It would be like explaining to a, a, a you know, a, an up, a, a rich upper, you know, a rich, upper middle class white person what it's like to be like a latina single mom with two jobs like there's no they don't they don't allow themselves to get in that kind of space where they can understand what it's like to try to operate within a system that feels like and is sometimes intentionally set up to make you fail um and i think that's that's a big bias that they have that back to what you both of you said this in some form but tracy like you said just try harder um and not knowing that not only sometimes do, and this is where the coaching comes in, neurodivergent people don't have the skills yet necessarily to, you know, the mental skills to the tools, let's put it that way, to operate within a workplace environment. And then we say to them, try harder. It's like, it's a double whammy. It's a double negative on a person that's just wants a place where they can do their best. Yeah, it gets extra especially hard when the leader is a highly or profoundly gifted um, systemic thinker mm -hmm. um, because um, quite often they get into leadership early uh, yes. because of their ability to see the big picture and they get picked out as sort of like, you're super smart and you can see yeah. the big picture. So we're going to put you in the high performer um, high potential category. We're going to run you up the ladder as fast as we can. And then when you get there, yeah, um, it's hard to believe how many people and the, and the more, like the more extremely gifted you are in particular, the harder it is to believe how many people can't keep up with you. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's not just when there's neurotypical people in certain places and neurodivergent people in other places right. it's the it's the gap between how my brain processes and how your brain processes right. that it causes the struggle yep and the influence of power people i think that's just often people with power don't realize what it's like to have it and people without power don't you know they don't absolutely absolutely they, human yeah. human beings are lazy and right. If we have the power to say, oh, just do this thing that I need done, right. um, that is the off, it is often perceived by our bodies as the quickest way to get it done. Yeah. Yep. So, um, Tracy, do you have anything to add to that? 
I think I always think it's really interesting how we all intellectually know that we are different, that diff- people are different and we are different from each other. And then in practice, we totally forget that. Right. Like, yep. That's what I hear is the through line through this. Like we yes, don't remember right. that. Yeah. Yes. And I call that smokestack thinking is this, 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 this bias that people are machines. They're part of the machinery and you just replace them. You get an, you, it, you know, they use that, they use language like, you know, human capital or our people are our best assets. And this very weird, uh, almost like human trafficking terms um, to talk about their, their people and the people that work for them. And someone that has a level of consciousness and a level of empathy does see, sees the, the way I refer to it is they see the garden and they see that the garden has some machinery, machinery in it, but the whole point of it is for humans for living, you know, for, for humans to work within that garden and having this garden mindset is kind of the opposite of smokestack thinking. Um, I want to, um, I want to, I want to ask one more question about debunking and then I want to get into any sort of debate that comes up. But um, so what is a, what is a misconception um, that a neurodivergent person has about the being in the workplace? What are some self-inflicted biases maybe that neurodivergent people have when it comes to the to the to the work and i'll maybe i'll say it less delicately where do you see sort of a victim mindset in neurodivergent people if you run into that i mean either of you go first do you want to take a stab at it tracy yeah i'm not sure on the victim part if i'm going to address that very well. But the thing that that first occurred to me is their misconception is oftentimes that they should be able to do it like everybody else. Mm -hmm. They should be like everybody else, that they're a failure. They're, you know, it's the shame that you talked about. It's all of that. It's, it's that it's a whole self-concept issue of getting these reflections that it made them, you know, so I'm not sure that that creates a victim mindset because oftentimes they don't, they don't even know the difference. Like they don't know that they could be thinking differently. They don't know that they could, it's not that they're a failure, right? Unless they have coaching, which is right. a lot of what we help with. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because I think that it depends on how successful people have been until they get to the point that someone like me or Tracy is working with mm-hmm. them. Because the more that people have struggled, the more they've embodied and sort of taken on this learned helplessness and this shame, and they see mm-hmm. themselves as broken and, and, yes. and, and badly formed and yes. incapable, and yes. they've taken it on as an identity. Yes. And actually from that place, seeing yourself as a victim of the system is actually progress. And so the hmm. people who are more, more functional at the next level often sort of are like, this is exhausted and the system's the problem and I'm doing the best I can, but the system is, is out, is designed to get me. It's I'm set up mm-hmm. to fail. And this is mm-hmm. where the victim mentality lands. Mm-hmm. And so often people in that place come to coaching and they're like, tell me how to fix this. Tell me mm-hmm. how to do this. And, and they need to actually learn how to take responsibility for crafting a work life relationship that works for them, given the world around them Mm -hmm. and actually to take that sense of agency. So Mm -hmm. I, sometimes that victim mentality is actually progress. Yeah. That's a very interesting take because I see it. I don't, I mean, I've, you know, it's, I don't use, I don't think that's a, I think that's part of the journey. You know, it's, it's part of being outside of the norms and we feel different. And we have, like I said earlier, and Tracy, you alluded to this, we have we have a, sort of an underlying sense of shame sometimes for the way we are. I think more in terms of my my youngest son, who has ADHD, and he's going into the eighth grade tomorrow. And, uh, you know, school's hard, getting harder and there's more pressure. And so that actually brings out some more, as we know, of the ADHD um, behavioral patterns or, 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 or responsive responsiveness, pa- or reactive patterns. And what I've explained to him is this, and this is something that goes back to answering the question about misconceptions that a person with neurodivergence has about it in a workforce, or in this case, school, is that, um, is that 
the system isn't going to change for you without pressure. And it's an ecosystem and ecosystems only change through pressure. They don't change through natural, they have to, it's evolution. It has to, there has to be some sort of shock to the system. So you have to, you have to stand, sometimes you have to learn how to stand up for yourself at a minimum, create systems within the system that are yours, whether that's a, a, a method for remembering to make and make and make and take your lunch, which are two separate steps, <laughs> uh, you know, and things like that. And those are real life examples. I think that if we, if, you know, when, when, when Andre is in the workforce or whatever he's doing, I I'm, I'm his, his mom and I are looking at it from a skill building standpoint because he's so gifted that we wouldn't want his belief that the system is out to get him to prevent him from being, from thriving and being successful. Um, so we have this sort of third way view, which is, yeah, the system's not set up for you. That's true. So we have to create one and we're, ha we're happy to help you do that as your, as your parents. So. Yeah. Go ahead, one of the, so go, oh, ahead, sorry, Kate, go ahead. No. So I'm just piggybacking on that and something from what Kate said and what we've been alluding to the whole time, but this is where coaching comes in, right? Okay. Because we're the, like, as part of coaching, one of the things we reflect is you can figure this out. You can do this. Like you have the capacity and only you can do this because you're the one who knows you the best. So what That's is right. that, like Kate was saying, that wildly different only works for you thing that is going to establish a system, get you where you want to go, just not the way everybody gets there. And that's like a huge part of what we do as coaches. Yeah, right? well, and, well said. And, and the reason that the neurodiversity inclusive coaching is slightly different than other coaching is that all coaching has to start with getting people out of the fight, flight, freeze, fawn right. response and into the creative, innovative uh, place of thinking. And for neurodivergent people who have been struggling against a system, that's harder. So we yeah. need more sophisticated techniques. And some of the techniques that coaches who haven't gone through this kind of thinking about how to work with the people who are struggling most actually can do harm because they can reinforce yes. that um, you should, it's easy. You should just be able to do this. Um, a great example for that is I have aphantasia, which means that when I close my eyes or when I think about an image, I see black or white or occasionally little floating swirls of color. I do not ever visualize anything in any concrete way. And apparently that's about 10% mm. of the population. Um, has that and um, and I have it pretty extremely wow. and a lot of co coaches use visualization exercises to try and get people to their happy place to like imagine that you're in your happy place and that you can see all of the sights and you can hear all of the sounds and you can smell the smells and for people who have a strong imagination this can be really, really comforting and can get them mm -hmm. to a really safe space where they can have that openness to the imagination. Right. And I had to learn to not pay attention to the prompts when being led through an exercise like that and to let them sort of wash past me and for me to hear some things that weren't actually the directions, right. um, but that were kind of my interpretations of the directions and just sort of see what happened because I would close my eyes and my co and the coach would say, okay, take yourself to a happy place and see all of the details. And I would be like, I see black. I see the abyss and the, the like, I see existential right. angst, like the abyss of the universe. I see the yeah. emptiness of space. This is not taking me to my happy place. <laughs> That's funny. All and, right. And, and I, I had to learn as a client yeah to be okay with a coach like that. But I learned it the hard way. And a bunch of coaches did a lot of like, this was worse than not useful. Yes. Well said, both both of you. So we're um, going to wrap it up here. Uh, and it's interesting with debate. We sort of did that already. But I'm, you know, we <laughs> naturally and in, in a friendly way, we, you know, countered each other, which I, I love. That's, that's fun, fun for me. I hope it was fun for you. Um, what I'm curious though is is either of you, is there anything that I said that you want to challenge? Well, I think you alluded to the fact that I sort of already just walked right in and do did because that's yes. what I do. 
what I do. She does. Yeah, that's great. Tracy, how about you? Is there anything I said that you, you want to, you want to call bullshit on or challenge? Well, I think that you're asking something of someone who is an ADHD or like, you want me to remember what has been said in the last 45 (laughs) minutes? I didn't take good enough notes for that. Like maybe that's what it is. This is the thing we're going to debate on that. I shouldn't ask that question about them. (laughs) Or at least give me a heads up if that's going to happen and then I'll listen for it. Right. Yeah. Uh, No, I've been concentrating on being present. So that's hard enough. So I don't remember what happened (laughs) 10 minutes ago. (laughs) I remember I'm sure you were brilliant at all times, said. Justin. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. That's funny. I hope not. That'd be boring. Um, <laughs> well, this was insightful as usual. I may do another one with you guys in a few months about neurodivergence, like self-care, um, because I think cool. that's another big, big area that people that are neurodivergent, you know, there's so many, we, we live in the too much information age. There's so many competing things related to, and then you got your sort of, you know, pseudo woo woo world that also isn't helpful to neurodivergent people as well. Um, so that finding the, the right balance of nutrition and mindset and meditation, working out medication, whatever, finding that, I think that would be a fascinating conversation. But in the meantime, you guys are launching the, uh, neurodiversity coaching Academy. When does that, when, when does that go live in the sense that someone will be able to, um, and I'll link, to, I know you have webinars coming up and I'll link to all that in the show notes, but when are you going to be, when will you have a product to sell where somebody can go? Yeah, I want that certification. Oh, so, so you take a crack at it, Tracy. I, you were ready to jump in. Then I really wasn't. I was just stumbling in. Um, <laughs> we, we hope to have continuing education credits for the international coaching federation available later in, in this this cycle, we're starting in September and going to next August. So okay. that's a start. And mm-hmm. then we do, you know, like in our imaginations have a sort of, well, Kate has much more than this in her imagination, but um, have a certification program that we want to be able to um, have already trained coaches who come right. and like train in the specifics of neurodiversity coaching. Because yeah. um, right. we're, we're, we're getting it there's definitely a need for that. And yeah. there's a lot out there for ADHD coaching, but not for other kinds of neurodiversity coaching. So yeah, how, Kate, cool. how'd I do? What do you want to fix? Um, so I think that you did great about the long-term vision and sort of the mm-hmm. medium term vision. Uh, the, the more immediate thing is that the webinars start in September and it is a year long series of one, uh, 90 minute class a month. Uh, and, uh, I'm astounded uh, by the fact that we settled on this, because I can't imagine a more valuable 90 minutes for people who are interested in this um, at the mm-hmm. moment in terms mm-hmm. of what we're t- we're looking at in terms of content and and pricing. So I'm really yeah. excited to see what we get in terms of people coming in and, and learning. Right. And you'll see that yeah. we're offering them at two different times, one mm-hmm. that is Europe friendly and one that is Australia, you're, you know, Australasia yeah. friendly. By the side of the world friendly. Okay. Yeah, I'll uh, link to those in the show notes. Thank you Thank both you. very much. This was stimulating uh, as expected. I might be able to use the dopamine spike from this conversation to go work out. That's my plan. So uh, <laughs> Double otherwise, that works. Yes. otherwise, yeah. Anyway, I appreciate you both very much. Thank you. Thank you.